I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 16. Now, Leviticus is one of these books that you're probably not too quick to read because it can be kind of dense and full of laws, detailed laws that seem to be very much unlike any laws that we have today. And it can be hard to connect with, with it in a lot of ways. But the chapter 16 that we're going to look at this morning is a really central chapter to life in the time of Israel. And it's actually a chapter that sets forth what the Israelites are to do on the most holy day of the year. And we know that this chapter is so important and that this, the Day of Atonement, which this chapter is about, is so important because the Jewish authors of Scripture, those who put this book together, Moses, and those who put Scripture's first five books together, did it in an intentional way. If we want to highlight the importance of something, we got a highlighter out, right? And if it's really important, maybe we like highlight it all over in a second time to make it really dark. The Jewish uh, writers of scripture would highlight stuff by putting it in the center. So chapter 16 of Leviticus is in the center of the book of Leviticus, literally speaking. And Leviticus is in the center of the Pentateuch, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's the middle of the five books. So this is a very important uh, day in the life of Israel that happens once a year. We'll read the first 22 verses And the last verse of this chapter together. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they offered profane fire before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at just any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, lest he die. For I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. Thus Aaron shall come into the holy place with the blood of a young bull as a sin offering and of a ram as a burnt offering. He shall put the holy tunic, the holy linen tunic and the linen trousers on his body. He shall be girded with a linen sash and with the linen turban he shall be attired. These are holy garments. Therefore he shall wash his body in water and put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats as a sin offering and one ram as a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house. And he shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat on which the Lord's lot fell and offer it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it and to let it go as the scapegoat into the wilderness. And Aaron shall bring the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, And make atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bull as the sin offering which is for himself. Then he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from the altar before the Lord, with his hands full of sweet incense beaten fine, and bring it inside the veil. 
And he shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the testimony, lest he die. He shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side. And before the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people. Bring its blood inside the veil and do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bull and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. So he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions for all their sins. And so he shall do for the tabernacle of meeting, which remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. There shall be no man in the tabernacle of meeting when he goes in to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out, that he may make atonement for himself, for his household, and for all the assembly of Israel. And he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it, and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around, And then he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times, cleanse it, and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting, and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel, and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. The goat shall bear witness on itself all their iniqu- and the goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to the uninhabited land and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. And then there's jumping ahead to verse 34 at the end of the chapter. This shall be an everlasting statute for you to make atonement for the children of Israel for all their sins once a year. And he did as the Lord commanded Moses. So there ends our reading of God's word. Let's ask God for his blessing upon this. Father in heaven, we come before you on the afternoon of this day and we thank you for your word which you have preserved for us as written by your servant Moses. We ask that you would move among us by your spirit, open our hearts, speak to us and be present among us as our teacher. Father, we want to hear from you and we want you to challenge us, comfort us and show us your grace in Christ. We ask this in Jesus name. Amen. got to arrange all my collection of cell phones here. There we go. Brothers and sisters, some of you might like studying geography. It's a study of places and physical spaces on the earth. Maybe you're into mountains or rivers or valleys, whatever. How the geological features affect the area in which you live, how they affect the climate. And depending where you live... It can really have an impact on how you build your house. Like if you're near a fault line, you're going to have to build your house stronger so that earthquakes don't topple it like we tragically heard in Turkey and Syria. Or if you live in Canada, where the weather can be 30 degrees in the summer and minus 30 in the winter, you're going to need some insulation. So geography affects how we live. We want to look, though, in Leviticus 16 at, you could say, the geography of holiness 
And what living in the presence of a holy God looks like. And as we consider the geography of holiness, it's helpful to have a bit of a geographical layout of the camp of Israel in our mind. If you were an Israelite, you would be on the move through the desert. And at the center of your camp, whether you're walking, uh, marching with everything packed up, or whether you're in camp, at the center of the camp is the tabernacle. But when camp is set up, the very center of the tabernacle is the most holy place where God is. That's the back room in the tabernacle. Then there's the front room, the holy place. And then there's the courtyard of the tabernacle. That's the third zone. And beyond the courtyard of the tabernacle is where the Israelites camp. And then beyond that is this vast wilderness, just wasteland. You don't want to go there because you die. Nothing grows there. But the geographical movements involved in the sacrifices on the Day of Atonement cover all those areas right from the center, the most holy place of the tabernacle, all the way to the farthest reaches of the wilderness. And that's unique because with the sacrifices that happened on all the ordinary days, they didn't cover all that geography. They were just more within the Israelite camp. But this takes us outside the bounds from the most sacred spot in the most holy place of the tabernacle to the most unsacred place of all in the wilderness. And God's depicting for us here the dynamics of a relationship between sinful people like us and him as a holy God. So I want to work through this chapter uh, with us, looking first of all at the inapproachable presence of this holy God at the center of the camp, and then the pervasive presence of sin all throughout the camp, and then the purifying power of God's pardoning grace that allows sin to be removed far from the camp and allows us to approach him. So first of all, the inapproachable presence of the holy God right at the center of the camp in the most holy place of the tabernacle. The word holy means set apart. And God is set apart from creation, but God is also set apart from sin and evil. And that's what the word holy means here. God's set apart from all sin. And He's got this blazing, white-hot holiness that will immediately consume any sin or evil that enters his presence. He's holy. That's what that means. And that's exactly what happened very recently in Israel's life. If you look at verse 1 of chapter 16, we just read, The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron. This alerts us to something Tragic that's just happened, something very sobering. In chapter 10 of Leviticus, if you go back a couple chapters, you'll read of how two of Moses' nephews, Nadab and Abihu, tried to enter the presence of God in the tabernacle, but there were two problems. One, they did it when they weren't supposed to, and secondly, they probably had consumed wine or fermented drink, which they weren't allowed to do, and fire went out from the Lord and killed them now you remember that god was present in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night god's blazing holiness the fire leads people when they love and obey him but it consumes them and kills them when we walk in disobedience and that's what happened when nadab and abihu approached the presence of god inappropriately 
Flames leapt forth from the cloud, licked them up, and their corpses were carried outside the camp. Moses' two nephews just died. The two sons of the high priest just died. And so it's with this sober atmosphere that settled over the Israelite camp as they mourned the death of Nadab and Abihu that this most holy day of the year is instituted. And the rituals that take place with the sacrifices on the Day of Atonement are powerful visual reminders of how serious sin is in God's sight. It's God's way of saying, I am not going to let sin anywhere in my campground. I don't tolerate that. I'm pure, I'm perfect, I'm holy, and nothing impure and evil can enter my presence. And God's teaching his people, if you as sinful people want to approach me, a holy God, you have to follow proper procedures. And the holiness of God is shown in these procedures that have to be followed. Let's look at a bunch of them. First of all, there's the procedure related to timing in verse 2. The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at just any time that he wants into the most holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, lest he die. You see, meeting with the holy God is not a casual thing. You don't just waltz into the residence of a dignitary like a prime minister or a king with any old scrubby clothes on and just walk in whenever you want. And it's the same with God. You don't just come before the holy God whenever you want, in whatever state you are. No. There's procedures to follow regarding the timing of when you come and your attire. And in the case of approaching the presence of the most holy God in the most holy place in the tabernacle, that back room, you could say, it's not something that's regularly done. That happens one time a year, by only one of the millions of Israelites, namely the high priest. That's how special approaching the presence of God in the most holy place of the tabernacle is. The second thing we notice is blood atonement is required if you're going to approach the presence of this holy God. Now, you know, we read a lot about blood here, right? Bring the blood of a young bull and the blood of a ram and the blood of goats, and we can think... This God is obsessed with blood. Is he like a vampire or something? No, that's not what this is about. You've got to remember, the wages of sin is death, says the Apostle Paul. God told Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, the day you eat of that tree, you shall surely die. And so when we read of blood in the Old Testament, it's not that God is gruesome and fixated with gore. It's... The biological reality that life is in the blood of the animal. As Leviticus 17 verse 11 says, the life of a creature is in the blood and sin costs you your life. And when your blood is shed, your life is gone. So there's blood atonement necessary, which we'll look at a little bit more in their second point. But also we see the holiness of God's character, not just in the blood that must be shed to approach his presence, but also the linen garments that the high priest had to wear on this day. Do you guys remember what high priest normally had to wear in the Old Testament times? They had these colorful robes, like they were blue, purple, red. They had pomegranates woven on them. They had bells from the hem of their, gar- um, uh, their robes that would jingle. And, you know, it was golden. It was bright and beautiful. But what's the high priest have to do on this most holy day? 
Look at verse 4. He shall put the holy linen tunic and the linen trousers on his body, and he shall be girded with a linen sash, and with a linen turban he shall be attired. That word linen is found there four times. Everything's linen. And the Hebrew word used for linen means white uh, linen. It's gone are all the colors, gone's all the brightness, pure white from head to toe. What does that mean? It symbolizes humility, right? It's so plain. It's not ornate. It symbolizes humility. But it also symbolizes purity, right? A bride on her wedding day wears a pure white dress, a sign of virginity and purity. Symbolizes purity of the priest and the purity that's required when you approach the presence of a holy God. You think of Revelation 7, the Apostle John sees in a vision all these multitudes clothed with white robes. And one of the elders asks him, Revelation 7, who are these arrayed in white robes? And the answer, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That white is a symbol of the cleansing of sin that comes through the blood of Jesus, the Lamb. Or you can also think of Zechariah 3. We see teaching about that linen and the clean garments we need. Um, Zechariah 3, we read of how Joshua the high priest was dressed in filthy or impure garments and couldn't approach God. And the angel of the Lord ordered Joshua the high priest, take off those filthy garments. Take off those filthy clothes. Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. So these white clothes show you don't approach God unless you're pure. Then another thing we learn about the holiness of God comes in verses 12 and 13. What's said about the incense. Before the priest enters the most holy place behind that back curtain in the temple, or sorry, the tabernacle, he's got to bring with him this fragrant incense. And that's got a twofold function. It creates a nice aroma that covers up the smell of death, right? The animals are being killed and there's blood all over. And, you know, it covers up that smell, uh, literally covers up that smell. But it also symbolically covers the, the smell of sin, you could say. But more importantly here, before the priest goes into the most holy place where the cloud dwells above the ark, he has to create this incense cloud because he's not allowed to see the presence of God. God is so holy. Remember what he said to Moses? You cannot see my face or you will die. No one can see my face and live. That's Moses, the friend of God. If he can't see God because of his holiness, no one can. And so when Aaron's walking into the most holy place, right? He's going into the tabernacle past the first set of curtains, past the second set of curtains, he's still not allowed to see the presence of God. And so this incense makes a third curtain, a cloud that blocks the holiness of God from his view when he has to go in to do his duties. If he doesn't, if he sees the presence of God and doesn't do that with the incense veil, he will surely die, we read at the end of verse 13. So it's like a smokescreen that prevents him from seeing the cloud of God's glory lest he die. So to summarize, at the center of Israelite camp is this gloriously holy God. And because he's so holy, none of these sinful people in the camp can approach him, even the high priest. 
And that makes this Day of Atonement, this most holy day of the year, a very somber day. It's a day not of feasting, but a day of fasting. The heavy atmosphere about this day happened one day a year. And as Aaron woke up on the Day of Atonement, as the Israelites woke up to the reality that this is the Day of Atonement, the solemnness that settles over the camp. Because remember, six chapters earlier, Nadab and Abihu died. They tried to enter that most holy place and dropped dead. And now the question is, oh boy, Aaron has to enter the most holy place. What guarantees he doesn't drop dead? How do we know The rituals that he has to perform require him to go in that room into the presence of God. So this makes it a dangerous day, you could say. We need to ask ourselves, do we realize and believe that God is this holy? That he can't tolerate sin? That sinful people can't be in his presence or they will be consumed? That it's dangerous to approach God without being cleansed? It's important that we ask ourselves that and we realize God's holiness. And maybe we say, well, I'm not that interested in approaching God. I don't really care about God. I'm not going to approach him, so I don't have to worry. No, on the day of judgment, he will approach us. So this is important for all of us. Are we ready to be in the presence of a holy God? Because when Jesus comes again, we have to face the holy God. So God's holy. He's at the center of the camp. Uh, The second point we want to look at is, The pervasive presence of sin all around and throughout the camp. In Amos 4, we read the Lord saying, I made the stench of your camps come up into your nostrils, yet you've not returned to me. Or Amos 5, verse 21, the Lord says to Israel, I hate, I despise your feast days. They are a stench to me. I can't stand the smell of them. God's talking about how sin stinks in his sight. Sin smells like skunk, you could say. You ever smell the skunk on the road and someone else maybe hit it? Maybe it wasn't even you and it still clings to your car. It's just horrid, right? You can plug your nose if there's a skunk that's sprayed in your backyard, but you still smell it because it's like these sulfur compounds in the air. If you plug your nose, you you smell it through your tongue. That's how powerful it is. And sin is like that. It's noxious, it's nauseating, and it it makes God vomit. That's how much he hates it. Imagine your dog got sprayed by a skunk. Do any of you guys have pets? Yeah, a dog, you have a dog or a cat, it gets sprayed by a skunk. Are you going to let it in your house? (laughs) No way, that stinks. And God says the same thing. When you stink like sin... You may not come into my house, into my presence. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. God's holy. He doesn't want that. But the reality is, I smell like skunk, you could say, because of my sin. You do. We all smell like skunk, the skunk of sin. 
It's, that's what God's teaching the Israelites here. It would have been easy for the Israelites to say, well, Nadab and Abihu, they're the ones who are really sinful. Look at them. They tried to enter the most holy place. We're not that brazenly rebellious. We're not that bad. I mean, we might grumble and complain about manna all day, but, you know, God rescued us from Egypt. He loves us. We're okay. No, the rituals that God is prescribing with these sacrifices teach that everybody is sinful and we all need to be cleansed. And he's teaching that no one can come into his presence unless they're cleansed. We must be cleansed of the smell of sin and the stain of sin. And it's interesting how in prescribing these rituals here, we, we got these instructions that Aaron first has to make atonement for his own sin. We can think, oh, I'm a pastor or I'm an elder in the church or a deacon or, you know, I'm part of a pastor's family. I'm, I don't, I'm better than other people. I don't need to have my sins atoned for. No. What do we read in verse 3 and verse 6? Aaron shall come into the holy place with the blood of a young bull as a sin offering and of a ram as a burnt offering. And then verse 6 specifies who these offerings are for. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering, which is for himself. He is sinful, and he has to cleanse himself of his sin first. And for his household. He and his household are stained by sin, just like all the other Israelites, and they have to be cleansed. Then only after that, in verse 5, he can go and atone for the Israelites' sins. Verse 5, he shall take from the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats as a sin offering and one ram as a burnt offering. He's got to take the two goats. And this makes the Day of Atonement distinctive. The Israelites offered sacrifices all day, uh, throughout the day, every day. But this happens only once a year where they have to take two young goats. And one is killed as a sacrifice, the other goat is sent away to serve a symbolic purpose. That's what we read of in verses 7 through 10. Moses shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. And as Aaron shall bring the goat Aaron shall bring the goat on which the Lord's lot fell and offer it as a sin offering. Now, casting lots, we don't know exactly how that worked, but you can think of it as a prayerful way of flipping a coin so that it's not the priest or someone else choosing which goat gets killed and which goat gets sent away. It's letting God make the choice through the casting of lots. But the first goat, goat number one, has to be killed. Its blood has to be then taken into the temple, into the back room, the most holy place, and sprinkled on the altar and on the mercy seat. That's a dramatic moment when Aaron has to enter there. And think of the Israelites. They're filled with tension. The question is in their mind. If Aaron goes through that curtain to the most holy place, is he going to come out alive? His sons died when they tried that. Everyone's on edge. Isaiah 33 verse 14 describes what the Israelites must have felt like on that day. The sinners in Zion are terrified. Trembling grips the godless. Who of us can dwell with the consuming fire? 
Who can dwell with everlasting burning? They're all wondering, will God accept the sacrifice Aaron offers? Will the blood of that goat satisfy God's wrath? How do we know? How do we know if God accepts that sacrifice? If Aaron comes out alive, then we know that God accepted the blood of the substitute as payment. So Aaron goes in, and after he enters the most holy place with the blood of that first goat, he then proceeds to do something very different with the second goat. Again, lots of sacrifices happening in Israel every day, but never what happens with this second goat, the scapegoat. In verse 20, we read, And when or after he has made an end of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, then he shall bring the live goat, the scapegoat. So you see this movement. Aaron's gone to the center of the camp and atoned for sin in the most holy place. Then he's going out into the uh, courtyard and to the Israelites. And now he's going to send this goat out into the wilderness. And what happens with this goat symbolizes the purifying power of God's pardoning grace. It's our third point. The purifying power of God's pardoning grace. This second goat, we're told what Aaron has to do with it in verses 21 and 22. Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of this goat and confess over it. Look at how the word all is repeated. Confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. And the goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. Notice how the word all is used three times. And the three words for sin there describe every kind of sin. The word iniquity just gets at that twisted heart, our desires, our wrong desires, where all our sinful actions come from. All of those sins can be forgiven. Transgression, all your transgressions. That word is like the strongest word for sin. That's like that, well, mom told me not to, and I'm going to do it anyway. Like just that rebellious spirit. All your transgressions, all your rebellious acts, your intentional sins, and then the final word, all your sins, just the general term for sin where we're not doing what God tells us to do or we are doing what he tells us not to do. Um, All your sins, your iniquities, your transgressions, God will forgive you. Lay them on that goat. And with the use of this word all, what God is trying to tell us is there is no sin that you've committed so intentionally and rebelliously that can't be forgiven. There is not a number of sins too high that it can't be forgiven. There's not a kind of sin that it's too gross and yuck and shameful that God won't forgive. No, all your sins, you can lay them on this goat and they will be carried away, every one of them. Where to? Off into the wilderness, way far away from the camp, off into that hot desert beyond sight. Carry it, the goat's going to be sent away to the furthest reaches of the earth, you could say, as far from the Israelite camp as possible. And it's like God is saying, by sending that goat with its, the sins of the people laid on it symbolically, it's like God saying, here are the sins you've engineered. They can go back to the wilderness. They have no power over us any longer. 
And later Jewish tradition developed this idea that that goat got pushed over a cliff to its death. Well, the Bible doesn't talk about that, but no matter what, this goat's in the wilderness, it's going to die. There's no water, no food. It's not coming back. And that's God's way of saying, if you trust in me, your sin is forgiven. It's gone. As far as the east is from the west, so far have I removed your transgressions from you. And I'm not going to get a fishing line and haul them back because it's way too far. No, they're out of sight, out of mind, forgiven and forgotten. So are you haunted maybe by past sin in your life? You think, look what I did then. Or look what I did this week. I feel shameful. I feel guilty. God says, come. Come to Jesus and lay your hand by faith. Lay your hand on Jesus and confess your sins. And he will forgive you. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. And when God forgives us, he doesn't call our sins back because he's removed them as far as east is from west. How far is that? (laughs) It's infinitely far, right? Jesus is the one, though, who fulfills all that's pointed to in the Day of Atonement. You know, that goat and those animals, they didn't actually wash away anybody's sin. They pointed to Jesus who would. Right? That animal is serving as a substitute, but it's only a picture substitute. He doesn't actually take away sins. Just like you're not going to have a toddler sub in on the NHL hockey line, right? That's just not an adequate substitute. It doesn't work. It's not an equal. So also that animal can't actually substitute for people. Hebrews 10, 4, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But Jesus actually can. Think of how Jesus fulfills everything we see happening on the Day of Atonement here. Aaron had to go alone into the most holy place. No one else. One man once a year. Jesus also went alone to the cross after he was deserted by all 12 of his disciples. He hung naked and alone on the cross. Think about Aaron offered blood, the blood of bulls and goats and rams. Jesus offered his own blood. Think of the outside the camp aspect of the sacrifice. After sacrificing the bull and the goat, their carcasses were burned outside the camp of Israel, symbolizing that sin has no place in God's camp, in God's presence. And the scapegoat was sent outside the camp, far away, carrying sin away. Hebrews 13, we read this. Hebrews 13, 11 and 12. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the, most, the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp, So also Jesus suffered outside the gate that is outside the city gates of Jerusalem in order to sanctify his people through his own blood. Why did Jesus suffer outside the gate? Why did the animals get burned outside the camp? Because sin has no place in the presence of God. No place in the holy city. And see also the frequency of this ritual. Aaron performed this day of atonement ritual and the scapegoat ritual one time a year. Once a year. Mind you, he had to repeat it year after year after year. But Jesus and his sacrifice happened not once per year, but once for all times. Because he actually pays for sin and cleanses us. 
And you can read through Hebrews 7 through 10 and you'll find that phrase repeated again and again. Jesus appeared once at the end of the ages to suffer. He was offered once to bear the sins of many. With his own blood, he entered the most holy place once and for all. And what happened after Jesus died in the tabernacle? God ripped the curtains from top to bottom in his way of saying, this is done, sin is paid for. Welcome into my presence. You can come. Your sins are cleansed. That's what Jesus did. Now the question is, you know, how do we know if the sacrifice Jesus offered was acceptable in God's sight? He took his own blood to the cross outside the city gate. How do we know? Was it actually effective in turning God's wrath against our sin away? Well, we can ask the same question that we asked of Aaron and the sacrifice he offered. We said, will Aaron come out alive? We say, will Jesus come out alive? Did he? Three days later, up from the grave he arose, right? God accepted his sacrifice, and we know that because of the resurrection. And so 52 days a year, we celebrate resurrection, right? Jesus rose on a Sunday. That's what we're here celebrating. Jesus' resurrection and the work that he did on the cross, uh, cleansing us through his blood. Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So to conclude... Do you recognize God is holy? And he, and it's a good thing, but he hates sin. Won't tolerate it. Do you believe that? Do you recognize your own sin and hate the smell of it? Do you seek to put it to death? And do you recognize that in Jesus, God atoned for your sin? That if you lay your hands on Jesus... And confess your sins. That is, if you have faith in what you've done on the cross, no matter what sins you've committed, no matter what your past, you're cleansed. You have a clean conscience before God. You can pray to him. You can rejoice because it's all been carried away. As far as east is from west, God remembers your sin no more. And he'll never bring it back to mind. And the final thing is, are you treating others the way God treats you? If you know that God has forgiven your neighbor, your spouse, your friends, your colleagues, are you forgiving them? Or are you holding their sin in front of them and living with grudges? God says, as the Lord, this is Colossians 3.13, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive one another. So let's live in the joy of knowing we're forgiven, knowing that our sin is taken away as far as east is from west.